This is a big-timing comedy production. Welcome backstage. Uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. VIP only. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are bandits. Are you jumping or am I undermedicated? You're listening to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. I'm with the band, okay? Ah, July, July is here. Right in the prime of concert season. I love it. I love it. Hitting all the various venues and hanging out with all these cool people. Nothing's better than that, right? Maybe a... Love a good concert. Ham and cheese sandwich. I'd rather have a concert. I'd rather have a concert, I'll go hungered. (laughs) I'll be hungry. Hey, welcome to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. It's your host, Meredith Marks, and producer Mikey. Hi. Hi. Welcome to episode three, being sponsored by Cassie Denton Photography. Cassie took my photos with me and my lovely twin girls and our puggle, Georgie, and did a great job. She's here local in the Baltimore area, CassieDentonPhoto.com. She doesn't spell it like the regular Cassie. It's C-A-S-I Denton, D-E-N-T-O-N, photo.com. You can find her on Facebook at Cassie Denton Photography. If you mention Backstage Pass, you get 10% off of your total package. She does family portraits and animals and engagements and pregnancy reveals, gender reveals, weddings, you name it. She'll shoot it. Also, Reisterstown Music on Main Street. I happen to be the MC several times over the summer here locally in Baltimore. Franklin Elementary School on Cockies Mill Road in Reisterstown. You can go to their website, Reisterstown.com, for some more information. I know uh, Friday, July 7th is Crushing Day. Really cool band. I'm going to be there as the MC. It's Friday nights throughout the entire summer, starting at 7 o'clock. Well, I had quite the experience last week. I mean, it really was an experience. So I had a message sent to me by my dear friend, Larry Lingle, who was the guitarist for Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons since I was a tot, since the early 80s. And he said to me, Meredith, my friend is rolling through Baltimore. Would you like to meet him? And I said, sure, Larry. Who is it? He said, it's Kenny Lee Lewis with the Steve Miller Band. They're on tour with Peter Frampton. They're coming to Meriwether Post Pavilion. So, uh, hi. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> so Kenny and I started chatting, realized that we had an interest in twins. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. But we became friends ourselves. And he invited me, along with my friend Rachel, down to the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. to go have some cocktails. Now, Mike, my producer, you know, he uh, he sometimes thinks it's a bad idea to chat before you have the actual interview because things are revealed and we go over things and stuff is discussed. Generic is much more fun <laughs> like when it just happens. Let me tell you something 
you're totally right, dude. <laughs> I wanted to have that piece of equipment at the Four Seasons sitting on the table because Kenny is an amazing storyteller. I mean, just it's incredible, some of his stories. And I had to catch myself and say, hold up, wait, <laughs> wait until tomorrow night when Surprise we're at, me. at Meriwether Post Pavilion and save some of these stories. So, um, you know, Kenny has been with the Steve Miller Band since 1982. It's really interesting to hear some of the things that he's got. And I'm going to wait, you know, to play you his interview that I did on the tour bus. It was raw. It was live. And there was a rumble. And that's cool. Just the hum. Hum of the tour bus. He has played with a plethora of talent. I mean, you're talking Solomon Burke. I'm drooling right now, Mike. <laughs> I mean, Solomon Burke, it doesn't get better than Solomon Burke. Travis Tritt, the Beach Boys. He's played with Ringo Starr, Pat Benatar, Brian Wilson, Scotty Page. You know Scotty Page. That name might come up later. It might. We might talk to him. Uh, Warren Haynes, Jimmy Rogers, Eric Johnson. I mean, they're Boz Skaggs. Just to name a few, I mean, just, just a few people. <laughs> there are so many more people that he has played with. Um, it's interesting to talk to him because he's got a lot of side projects. You you don't realize that the musicians that are in these huge, globally known bands have these side projects, and I love to hear about them. You know, he's he wrote a book. Uh, he's in a few different bands on the side, and we're going to talk about it and hear all about it. But the most amazing thing about him is how humble he was. He was so inviting. Uh, my friend Rachel and I, we go backstage in Meriwether Post Pavilion, right away meets us, guides my car back, takes us onto the tour bus. You know, what do you bring the Steve Miller Band when they come to town? What do you bring these guys? Well, there's only one thing. Burger cookies. Any out of town. Burger cookies. Greatest cookies ever. But they happen to be a Baltimore staple. So I brought them some burger cookies. But they're not a sponsor. They're not a sponsor. But yeah. I do love them. And I took them to Frankie Valley as well. I'm just kind of making my <laughs> my way with these burger cookies taking them. Because people have to have them. Uh, anyway, I just want to tell you guys about my experience. You know, walking backstage to Meriwether Post Pavilion in beautiful Columbia, Maryland. The new Meriwether. The new Meriwether. Uh, I can't remember the last time that I was there, Mike. I really, I'm trying to remember and I'm having a hard time. <laughs> Me either. Okay. In terms of, let's just clarify, in terms of backstage. Now, as a kid, I grew up at Meriwether Post Pavilion. I grew up living backstage there. I remember going back and there were all of the wooden picnic tables right on the back it was like the perfect place to eat crabs and I had dinner with Whitney Houston and her father I got asked at one of those picnic tables to go snort cocaine with a very famous person who I will not name right now um, and uh, hung out with Hootie and the blowfish back there lots of people hugged Debbie Gibson saw Janet Jackson I mean 
These were huge named artists that came through this beautiful venue. We were so lucky to have it. And now, oh my God, dude. I <laughs> Did you to... bring your water wings? <laughs> <laughs> I should. They have a pool. Can you believe that? I now, saw that. I think it's incredible a that rotating stage with a rotating stage. No, not quite, not quite. But the the pool is a great idea to have for people that are traveling with their families. You know, you have these artists, and you think they're these incredible rock stars, which they are, but they're also human, and a lot of them travel with their children. And while these are long days, and you're hanging out backstage, what are these kids to do so they can go jump in the pool? Also, the uh, sweaty sound guys and the lighting guys and the rock stars that are completely drenched in sweat hop off the stage and can go skinny dip and jump in the pool back there. They have their own lifeguard. They've got pool houses. Their band room, the band area is gorgeous. Also, Meriwether is not a sponsor as well. It's not. <laughs> but we love it anyway. Damn it. Um, and I got to say, it is... It was an it was an experience unto itself to actually just walk back there and see because when you grow up as a kid looking at this backstage and you're so used to it being one way, the amount of work and money and time and effort and thought that they put into this backstage area, I mean, this is going to be a huge draw for people to come and play there because people talk. I mean, you've got the Steve Miller Band and Peter Frampton Band, and they're going to go and talk to their friends. Dude, I played this venue, and the backstage is fucking sick. <laughs> okay? Just off the hook, insane. And people get that shit around. And they're going to talk about it. And it should be talked about, Mike, because they did an amazing job, and I want them to know that. So uh, kudos to Meriwether Post Pavilion for an amazing job renovating their backstage area, which which... I mean, I, I didn't know that it really needed it. I, I was backstage in some of the rooms, you know, growing up, and I didn't know the difference. But, man, this is like <laughs> five-star resort back there. So, anyway, um, it was cool. And I met some Peter Frampton guys, nice as can be. You may hear them on a future episode. Just saying. Awesome. Yeah. So we're going to dive right into this interview right now and talk to Kenny Lee Lewis. From the Steve Miller Band. All right, hey, it's Meredith Marks with Backstage Pass. We're on the tour bus with Kenny Lee Lewis from the Steve Miller Band, who has, what, been with this band for 30-something years? 37 years. 37 years. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Kenny. Hi, how you doing? Good I'm great. You, Good to see you. So, yeah, it sounds to me like you need your uh, classic rock injection, you know, you need your inoculation that you've been without for two years. That's true. Well, I've had other classic rock <laughs> injections, but uh, Steve Miller Band, I will take a double dose of that anytime. Yeah, yeah. Just stay away from the brown injections. <laughs> <laughs> we, we shall try to do that. Uh, so you and I got to have some drinks last night down in D.C., and we were talking about a lot of stories. And, and one of the things that you are doing is you are writing a book. I want to start off first with that. Uh, you're writing a book about identical twins who have their own twin speak. Yes. Well, I mean, if you go on the internet and you Google twin speak, you can find out it's a well-documented uh, phenomenon that occurs uh, in twins, specific, 
particularly in identical twins. They seem to be more apt at doing it. Um, it's just something that occurs, you know, when they're very, very little. And then when they start going to, you know, preschool and stuff and parents start teaching them English stuff, they kind of lose the connection between this language that they have that nobody knows where it comes from. It's never been documented. It has no dictionary. It has no, you know, it has no meaning, you know. It's like so, but they understand each other. So I always thought that was, you know, a phenomenon that I thought was fascinating for many years anyway. And then I met a uh, identical twin that was uh, a girlfriend of our old bass player. And then I met her sister, of course, which, you know, freaked me out. I mean, these two beautiful, you know, 30-year-old women, you know. And then they were really friendly, and I met their mother. And they were, she was telling me the stories of what they were like when they were little. And uh, it made the hair rise up on my arms, some of the stuff that she told me. And I just went, wow. Yeah. I said, can I use that as a story premise and write a novel on it? And she said, sure, why not? You know, I said, just change the names. I said, sure, yeah, we'll change the names. So, you know, it's a novel, but it's based on a true story for the, about the first 10 chapters. And then from then on, it goes on into Stephen King land and turns into the sci-fi fantasy, uh, you know, journey of these twins that, you know, their trials in life and dealing with this. this and they, plus they sing. These It's a matriarchal... Uh, uh, it's a matriarchal sort of a, a tradition in this lineage of this family that goes all the way back to the Druids, back before, you know, Romans came to Britannia and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, we all know that Merlin was one of the last Druid sorcerers, you know, and uh, he used to use these incantations, which included singing, frequency, certain types of inflections inside the palate, inside the tone of the mouth. And then when you use the words with it, which was an ancient language that, if you read the book, I don't want to give the ending away, but when you read the book, you find out what the source of this language was and why it has this power. And eventually they, you know, use this into their adult life. And then the next thing we know, they're like healing people and raising the dead and doing all kinds of things, you know, which would be like, you know, to the church is like, you know, I mean. That's, that's like, where you dive into the sci-fi the, aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, and it's like the church is not too happy with it because, you know, they never really wanted the Druid language to be known anyway. That's why they buried it in the Dark Ages because right. they didn't really want anybody to have this power. You know? Yeah. And that's my theory. It's just a novel, so, you know, you just take it from that. But everything inside the book is all based on factual, historical stuff. And a lot of the references I make are all from the Old Testament, including references to the Tower of Babel, which leads you to the title of the book, which is called Skeleton Dolls, Children of the Tower, because they're descendants of a language that, that existed prior to the destruction of the Tower of Babel. Yeah. Which nobody knows what that language was, you know, because in the Old Testament, it says, you know, that, you know, that Noah, Moses, and Abraham, and all these people, Ezekiel, whatever, they would talk directly to God. They would have conversations, you know. They wouldn't say, oh, he had a thought that came into his brain and it sounded like this. They go, and he said, and then he answered, and then he said, that's what the Old Testament says. I didn't write that, you know, so that leads me to think that they were actually having conversations. Which I forgot to bring up to you last night. It kind of gave me a little bit of a feel of, do you remember the movie Escape to Witch Mountain? Where the two siblings are communicating with each other telepathically. It it's a, a Disney creepy, movie. It was, but it kind of is like it's not the same premise, but at the same time, it's it's kind of in that sci-fi realm where mm-hmm. the where the two siblings are are, are connecting. And mm. and I have twins that are fraternal, yes. and we spoke about this. You know, Casey and Parker, um, they've always had twins speak mm-hmm. since they were young, right. and it's been fascinating as a mom right. to watch that. And you asked if one felt pain when the other was injured. And I've had 
situations like that, even though they weren't identical, I had that as yeah, well. Yeah, fraternals are able to do it too. Yeah. And they're connected in, in, in strange and wonderful ways. With identicals, as you know, it's one zygote that splits and mm -hmm. it turns into two zygotes, two yes. eggs. And then it connects with to the placenta through one umbilical they share yes. a placenta. Yes. Actually, sorry, they it's share a placenta, but it splits off to two, two umbilical, umbilical cords. Right. Yeah. So they have identical DNA. So it's very, they're very scary people. These two women that I knew were freaking me out. You know? <laughs> and I just said, yeah, I got to write a book about your childhood and like take it into this other area. And they were like, okay, cool. Yeah. And they've read the book and I haven't gotten any really big responses from that, but it's all the people that have read the book that have bought it so far on Amazon, because you can buy it on Amazon.com, Skeleton Dolls, Children of the Tower by Kenny Lee Lewis. Um, I'm getting great reviews on it, but I just haven't gotten myself to an agent yet, and I haven't, you know, this was something I just wanted to experiment with, and I, in order to find out if it's any good, you got to get people to read it. In order to get people to read it, you got to publish it. you got to publish it, you're, you're actually released it already, and then it's hard to get agents to get excited about it when you've already released it, and so now I've kind of blown it, and I'm, I'm doing the second book right now, and, and hopefully I'll be able to take the second book unreleased and unpublished to agents and publishers say, hey, look at this one now, and you can go backwards and the other one if you want, because I want to make a trilogy on this. Nice. I'm also doing other books, too. i got uh, biographies and other novels, and I've got a movie script that I'm shopping around. And, you know, just right. Tell, tell me about... You were, you were talking about how your wife's family was from Memphis. Yes. And your mother-in-law, Martha Jean the Queen Steinberg, was a DJ. Mm-hmm. Martha Jean the Queen Steinberg. She won a contest. Uh, actually, she was a runner-up in a contest. when a, The first black female DJ in America was a woman named Willa Monroe. And she was really... Quite the lady, you know, dressed up all kinds of really diva-like outfits, big hats, you know, had this big personality, you know, had all these different tips for the ladies around Memphis, you know, and how to cook for your man, how to dress right, you know, and everything. And she eventually ended up uh, moving out of this, uh, she had some physical problems, or she moved out of the area, I can't remember which one, but it's in the book. And uh, she, they, she left the station, they were freaking out because she was so big. And so they decided to have a contest in the, in the uh, area there. And they invited women to come down and audition. And uh, Martha Jean um, didn't get the first round. Uh, they used a, a woman named Star McKinney. And then there was another woman, I think, who was a school teacher. When she decided to get married, uh, she couldn't be a school teacher anymore. I don't know. They had weird rules back then. It was weird. But anyway, because Martha Jean, they remembered her. They invited her to come back. And she just blew it this up. This is in the... This was 1954. in 1954. Now, this, okay. the station had been on on the air for six years by then. Oh, wow. Actually, okay. seven. But when they, in 1948 is when they went to all-black format, which was unprecedented in world history, let alone American history, to let black people have their own formatted DJ shows mm -hmm. and sell products to the black community. That was the first time it had ever happened. That was in 1948. So six years later is when Martha Jean was brought on board after that contest. And how does Elvis Presley come into play with your wife's family? Well, I mean, they were all from there. They're all from Memphis. And then when the Presleys moved up from Tupelo, I think it was, I want to say it's 1950 or 51 is when they moved up to Memphis. Uh, he started going to the Trig Baptist Church to hear singers right in the neighborhood where, you know, 
my wife's family used to go and, and another family called the newborn family would go. And he started getting involved just listening to gospel from the neighborhood there. Then he would start going to these Cotton Jubilee shows that were down on Beale Street, which were big celebrations for, of course, the cotton industry. And, uh, and they were pretty popular back then. And, well, the black community knocked it out of the park. I mean, they would bring their high school bands and they just played their buns off. And then they had all these other players and yeah. dancers and poets. I mean, it was like just real, all of a sudden, this big upswing renaissance of art. Because, you know, before then, they weren't even allowed to participate in the Cotton Makers Parade, which was the one that was downtown. I mean, they, were, they weren't really allowed to participate. I mean, this was during Jim Crow and segregation and all that. So... But Beale Street didn't have that problem. They had their own community. They had their own little world. It was like this little bubble where everything was kind of cool and everything was equal. And they had their they had their place. You know, they had a place where they could, uh, you know, express themselves. So that was going on. And uh, Elvis started hearing these bands performing at, you know, the Jubilee. And then also when he got old enough later on, when he got bigger, he could actually sneak in the back door of like the Paradise Club, the Plantation some of the other clubs that were around there in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Memphis area. And he would hear these bands playing. And they were my wife's family and uh, my wife's uh, father, my father-in-law's keyboard player, Finest Newborn Jr. and their families were all jazz guys that started playing Boogie Woogie just for fun because people liked it. Yeah. But it was like, it wasn't like their favorite music. I mean, they were into bebop and American Standard. You know, American Standard songbook and, you know, and, you know, classical music, you know, I mean, uh, but they just started doing it for a hoot and it just caught on like crazy. And so they started working more, doing smaller rhythm sections, doing this boogie bop is what we call it. And to answer your question, that's where Elvis started hanging around with them and asking them questions and how do I get into this and where do we get my material? Where do I shop for clothes? How do I get my hair like yours? You know, I mean, really, you just got enamored with my wife's family and the other two families, uh, the Green family and the Newborn family I was talking about. So you've got a title for this book for yeah. a reason. Well, the title comes from the radio station. The radio yep. station, when they decided to go into a black format, mm -hmm. they did it because they were floundering. And anybody that you know goes on the internet and reads about WDIA around 1947, 48, can read about the story about how they just made the decision to start having black DJs and start marketing products to the black community which was an untapped resource. Sure. So they were hurting, you know, in their regular format playing, you know, you know, opera and symphony, you know, the ink spots and Glenn Miller, you know, like everybody else was doing. When they decided to go to this black format and start playing this race music, it got really popular and they were able to start getting all kinds of new advertisers at the black community, which raised, you know, the advertising dollars, which brought them out of their debt and it saved their station. And so the, the title, It's All Green, ties in with the fact that they didn't do they didn't make this decision lightly to put black people in the air because they knew they'd be endangered you know and of course the clan and everybody else was out to get them and it was a real crazy time but you know the military had been integrated and jackie robinson had been put on the dodgers and so things were starting to loosen up a little bit so when they did this there was some feedback there was some blowback but it didn't nobody got hurt or anything it was, it was pretty good you know so when they got away with it and all this R&B and race music started going into the white suburbs of the airways. The teenagers went crazy. They just loved it. And that was in 1948. Wow. That was in 1948. 1948. So, you know, to save their station, 
they made their decision not on a black or white issue. They just did it because they needed the money, and that's why I called it it's all green. So, you know, they didn't do it to be nice to the black community. They did it because they wanted the money. The money. Yeah. Money, 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 money. I want to talk about your Barflies Blues Band. You just, you gave me a CD last night. I'm going to just tell you this story. This is raw. This is exactly how it happened. Driving home from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore last night. I take two-ton kitty. Okay. And I put it into my car, into okay. my stereo. Okay. And I'm, I'm listening, and I'm going through the first three songs, and I'm going, this is great. I mean, this is great. And then, you know, I've got my friend Rachel passed out because she couldn't hang. Okay. And she's just done. She's out. She's done. She, she's not getting a dose of two-ton kitty. Oh, okay. It's just me getting two-ton kitty in full force solo. All right. So I'm listening to the first three songs, <laughs> grooving up 295, going, this is great. I'm liking this stuff. Excellent. I'm glad and you then, enjoyed it. And, and, and then song four comes on. Real estate on her bones. Yes. And I have to tell, I'm going to tell you right now. I had to be quiet because I didn't want to wake her up. I started laughing. I had such a smile on my face. When this guy's like, you know, oh, I want a big, big mama. I am loving lyrics to this song i actually had to i i wanted to listen and i'd listened to the entire cd mm-hmm. but when it got to song five and right. i listened to five six seven i'm going i've got it in my head yeah this is a song that's stuck in my head and i go back i had just gotten on to the baltimore beltway mm-hmm. and i go back to song four uh-huh. and i go i mean it's just so great well, it, it, and I love songs like that because those are the those are the songs that stick in you, and it was it was fantastic. The lyrics are great. It's really an old takeoff on an on an old folk uh, blues song that was called I, I Want a Big Fat Daddy. It was a male version sung by a female, and she and the lyrics were I want a big fat daddy with some meat shaken on his bones. That's actually a really old song from the twenties or thirties. And there's recordings of it. You can look at them, Big Fat Daddy. I will. And I just took it and made it gender reversed, you know. So I just said I want a big fat mama with some real estate. So is that your idea? Yeah, that's my original idea. I love And it lifts up it lifts up women that are comfortable inside their bodies that are, you know, got some meat on their bodies, you know, which of course is popular now. In these days, you I've know, got a little junk so, in the trunk. So it's I all thought, good. I, yeah, man. I mean, you know, every, my wife's beautiful. She got curves. It's all about curvaceous, you know. That's right. And uh, you know, that's my taste. I yeah. mean, you know, I don't know what other guys think of it, but I mean, I think it, it lifts up and it gives confidence, but with a sort of a you know a little sneer or a little a snicker and a little bit of humor. I should not a sneer, snicker, and adds humor and it. But it's actually a real issue, you know, that some men don't aren't bothered by that. You know, and I'm not, so I wrote a song about it. You know, I think that's fantastic. And, I, and when I do it live, I mean, you should see the ladies oh, that stand up; they freak the heck out. You know. Well, I mean, that's the thing. This is the thing I'm talking about: the Barflies Blues Band, uh, which is Kenny Lee Lewis's other project that he's working on, or that he has. It's it's Two Ton Kitty is the album, and and that's another big girl too there's two ton kitty oh well t- let's talk that, about let's the lyrics on two ton kitty relate to the same subject matter let's talk about two ton kitty so two ton so, kitty's a little different because it's more about settling for the big girl yeah 
big fat mommy is actually desiring the big girl. Yeah. So they're two different they're angles two totally on different the same angles. subject matter. But I'm lo- we're looking at the <laughs> album cover, and your daughter did the graphics for this, and we're looking at a, a pretty big pussy cat with very large breasts yeah. and long fingernails, and I think that's fantastic. It's like Fritz the Cat kind of cartoon. That's oh, great. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, Sierra's real talented. She works at Warner Brothers now, and she's kind of the go-to person if you want that Disney, Warner Brothers, you know, kitschy, hand-drawn, real personality type caricatures. Oh, it's great. It's definitely something that you would see in a Disney movie, Mm -hmm. but in a uh, much more raunchy way, Yeah, I guess you could say. But I I just wanted to tell you that because it's, it's great when you're listening to an album for the first time. And then all of a sudden, you're not expecting a song that comes on. And I had a smile, right? When Rachel woke up and I had a smile on my face the entire drive home. Because that, I mean, I I found humor in that. I loved that. So thank you for that. Good. And so talk to me now about, we're sitting on the tour bus right now with Kenny Lee Lewis and the Steve Miller Band. You've played with countless people you know just to throw out a few let's just throw out a few okay. uh george thorogood bb king steve miller band you've been with for 37 years warren haynes ringo Starr, paul mccartney yep dave mason kenny chesney you hit a little country mm-hmm. scotty page <laughs> yeah saxophonist for pink floyd um let's go into the project that you did with Scotty Page where you brought a bunch of people together mm-hmm. okay and it was called well um, if you're talking about the cooking show I don't want to go into do no no not cook no oh. the other the band that you just had. the band okay yep. good okay good thanks because yes. I want to kind of keep that a secret okay well we're still trying to sell that <laughs> I don't want to give anybody any ideas yeah so but anyway yeah we um, I actually um, was invited he had actually started the band with a bunch of studio guys and a, a, a gentleman by the name of Cal David was the guitar player and they called the band Hang Dynasty mm-hmm. and uh, had Cal David had started to travel a lot more. I think he was going out of LA more often. He couldn't make a lot of the gigs. So I was invited into this, but it was still in its infancy. And so I did most of the major gigs with this Hang Dynasty. But if you go to on the internet and you go to hangdynasty.com, the website, you could see what this band is. And it's kind of a who's who hired gun bunch of guys that all play with these really big groups. I mean, you know, we, we got Lee Sklar that plays with Phil Collins and, you know, Ray Brinker, the drummer was playing with Pat Benatar at the time. And that was uh, Tierney Sutton. Uh, we had Scott Baxter from the Doobie brothers and Steely Dan on guitar, as well as myself. Uh, Mike Finnegan on keyboards and vocals. My God, he's just unbelievable. He played on Jimi Hendrix's Electric Lady Line album, and, mm. you know, Rainy Day, Dream Away, and all those songs. And, uh, you know, we had horn players from the Tonight Show band, from Tower of Power, you know. I mean, it's just a big, giant band. And then also uh, we have guest artists that come join us, like in this particular video. We have Edgar Winter, he was our guest. And we did Free Ride, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, and all those songs. Yeah, you yeah. know, so. But Hang Dynasty, the name Hang insinuates that we just like to hang out together. Right. We don't really rehearse. We just kind of show up and we just kind of call off songs because we've, we've been in this business so long. We know all these songs already. Right. You know, they're all R&B, blues, blues songs. stuff. We don't do a lot of original stuff in the Hang Dynasty, but we'll go do corporate parties. And it's like the most incredible rocket ship, you know, freight train you've ever heard, you know. Uh, and we just call off these songs and we just blow. 
you know, and it just, it's all impromptu and it's all spontaneous. So it's like a jam band. So it's really cool. I love it. It's like the ultimate jam band. Yeah. It's like, cause you get a touch of so many different musicians from different bands. Yes. And if you want to be close to that one band, if you love that one band or several of them, and you, we, know, you can and, go and, right there and see everybody right there on that stage. And together. we do material from the bands that we all play. We'll, we'll do some Doobie Brothers and some Steve Miller and some Steve So Dan, much fun. You know, and we like a winner. And it's like we, we do the material of the people that we play with in addition to other old standards and stuff. You know, and it's, it's a pretty cool package. So we do that about two or three times a year for corporate events and stuff. And that's really fun. So and, if you're a big Scott, corporation and you and you want them, go to hangdynasty.com. Yeah, and Scotty and Scotty's kind of the MC. He likes to talk on the mic and stuff, so he's the big MC, and and uh, we kind of co-lead the band together. So much fun. Yeah. So you've been with Steve Miller Band for 37 years. Yeah, it'll be 37 years, I think, in November. So yeah, so we're, we're talking just going about on it. How, how how did you get into the Steve Miller Band? Or is it 37? Or is it 38 November? I met him in '81. So that would be one plus seven. It would be eight. Yeah. Whoa. So 81. Do the mm-hmm. math, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's 36 years for sure. It doesn't really matter. But anyway. Uh, it's a long time. It's a long time. And I was one of the new guys when I joined, you know, because, I mean, he's been in the business 50 years this year. He started making records 50 years ago. And uh, so this is kind of our 50th anniversary. But I think he's going to save it till 1968 when he really had his first radio single. So next year will be our celebration that we'll celebrate 50 years. Because so. I think uh, Living in the USA was probably his first radio single. Right. And the last one was Abracadabra. Correct. In 1982. 82. Right. Okay, wait. We got. Let's talk about Abracadabra. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then we're going to go back to how you originally got into the Steve, how you got started with the Steve Miller okay. Band. Okay. Okay. Abracadabra, 1982, last top single for the Steve Miller Band. Originally... Not the lyrics that it has now. Correct. What happened? Well, I mean, he he had a song that was called Macho Children that he was singing over the top of it. And he was, you know, we just had Macho Man as a single in some disco or a B thing. I can't remember. It was like right at the tail of disco. And I think he liked the word macho. It was being used around a lot in jargon and literature and movies and stuff. Wrestling was big. Yeah. So yeah. He, and he also had a song called Macho City that was on his album called uh, Circle of Love which was the album just prior to this. And so he had a little macho leftover is what he had. So he, he had extra lyrics with macho themes. So he had used that for the lyrics of this track. And uh, so we liked the track, but the lyrics were just not quite right. You know, so we kept the track around and we were helping to produce the, the record, you know, because we wrote a lot of the material on the record, which we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he, he, w- he went to, this is the story he told me, he went to a celebrity ski uh, event that was in Sun Valley, Idaho, where he had just bought a condo, and he participated. And apparently, Diana Ross was one of the celebrity people who was, you know, participating. And she had her cute little pink park on, you know, and was up there trying to do her little ski number and stuff. And he just thought she was so cute. I think he always had a thing for the Supreme, so he was really enamored by her. And so he got inspired by watching her in her little pink ski outfit and. For whatever reason, he skied down to the to the lodge and got out a napkin in the, in the cafe there, and he scribbled out the lyrics to Abracadabra in about 20 minutes from what he told me. And uh, he brought that the next week to Capitol Records where we were working on the record. And that's when he presented it to me and Gary Maliver and, you know, David Cole. We were all helping him kind of engineer and produce the record. And we just went like, wow, are you kidding me? Abracadabra, I want to reach out and grab you. 
I mean, that's a hook, you know. So we went, man, I think you did it, you know. So we didn't know whether it would be the single or not, but we uh, we definitely recorded it, and uh, I helped them produce the guitar solo along with Gary and David, and uh, was done with more of a sound effects than a regular solo, and uh, and that's how we came up with the, with the track. But uh, there you go. People love it. Oh, some I people didn't. Love it. Some people didn't. Some people didn't like the song. Other people just couldn't get enough of it, and you couldn't kill it with a stick. It went number one twice. And the third time it went back up the trips, it went up to like two or three, almost went number one three times in a row, which would have tied the all-time record of Inadegata de Vida as being a top number one single three times in a row, consecutively up and down the charts. So it almost tied Inadegata de Vida. So it was quite a single. But it gets still it gets a good reception when oh, you're yeah. playing it, it on stage. You'll hear everybody, it everybody goes, yeah. You'll hear it tonight. It's 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 infectious. You know, it's it one is. of those things. You know, when you're writing hit singles, it's different than you know real meaningful, deep poetry. You know, politically. You know, uh, you know. I mean, when you hear like you know, uh, uh, for what it's worth, by Buffalo Springfield, they're talking about there's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to be where. I mean, that's a political statement. That song was unbelievably important to our movement in the '60s. You know, but sometimes you just want to write a, a fun song. You know, mm-hmm. and that's most of Steve's singles. Now, Fly Like an Eagle has a lot of meaning, too. I mean, it talks about, you know... That's my kid's favorite. Feeding, feeding the children and shooing people with shoes and putting, house, putting them in yep. houses. You know, there's a little bit of that going on, you know. But uh, most of Steve's stuff is just fun music, you know. And this was a fun song. All right, tell me, how, you, how did you originally get into the band? Well, um, I'd done three records with different bands, and the third one that I had done was with a band called Gerard McMahon and Kid Lightning, and we were signed to American Recording, which was a label that was owned by Earth, Wind & Fire. Uh, they also were working with George Massenberg and Bob Cavallo over at the complex off Pico there in Westwood. And that's where we signed. And uh, <clears throat> the drummer for that band was a guy named Gary Malibur. And Gary played on all of Steve's big hits before I even joined the band. You know, the, all the greatest hits from 74 to about 78, Gary played on all those tracks, with exception, I think, to maybe the Joker, which was another gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he and I broke away from this Gerard McMahon and Kid Lightning because we weren't getting any airplay and it wasn't really going anywhere business-wise for us, the band members. So we formed our own band called Robbie Ubop, which was a name that came about from a famous belch that we used to do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I won't even demonstrate right now. Robbie Bob. It was like some kind of kooky. I mean, this is, we're like children, right? You know, we I know, know we like thing. demonstrations on this yeah, show. Yeah, I'm going to do that. But, but anyway, it was called Robbie Bob. And we, uh, we almost got signed to Irving Azoff's label, Giant. And the reason why we didn't get signed was because uh, it was the advent of the 80s and, you know, we were just kind of like normal American-looking guys, you know, long hair, you know, T-shirts, Levi's, you know, like the Eagles or everybody else. And at that time, I mean, Duran Duran was hitting hard, you know, and the way George came out of nowhere, and it was just like, really, I mean, if you weren't like a skinny little thing with mascara and a lot of hair gel, you weren't going to get noticed on MPV. So, for whatever reason, they passed on us, and, uh, uh, but prior to that, we had a demo. And we had done eight songs in Gary's garage. And uh, when uh, Steve called Gary one day looking for material, he said, i got to deliver an album in about three months, and I'm, I'm kind of dry. I don't have any material. 
do you have anything that you might want to send me that I could listen to? So Gary came in and talked to John Massaro and myself. We were all kind of a, a songwriting team. And he just said, do you want to send this demo to Steve? I said, sure, send it to him. So we sent him all eight of these masters. And we get this call back that he wanted us all eight of them. He wanted every song. So now we don't have a band anymore. We don't have any material, you know. And we have to make up our mind to, to give up our, basically our band, Rob Ubop, to him. And uh, and we did. And he sent over a 24-track, uh, two-inch machine to Gary's house outside in the driveway. And we transferred from our eight-track Tascam TAC master machine to a you know a two-inch you know you know Tascam. 3M or whatever it was. Yeah. And then they took those ma- they took those tapes back to Capitol, and that's when you know Steve started working on the, the project. Uh, which an event he called me at some point and said, hey, I'm really digging your bass playing and guitar playing on these things. I think I'm going to keep these tracks just the way they are. No reason to re-record them. And I went, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that I was going to be in the band. I just figured he was going to do my songs, you know. And then eventually invited me down to help him co-produce and then eventually asked me to come to the, the photography session for the album and then I joined the band. But that all kind of happened like pretty quick. I mean, I think I we got the call in September and we were finished with the album by the end of November. You know, so we just like, and we did it for really cheap because, you know, we didn't have to like spend a lot of studio time because all the masters were pretty much done. And then he had these two songs left over. One was called Give It Up, which is kind of like a little ska reggae thing. And then he had this Macho Children that we got the lyrics changed to, which became Abracadabra. It sold uh, pretty much like five million copies worldwide on that run between 82, 83. And you only took a short break from being in the band, right, when your daughter was born? My first daughter was born in 1987, and Steve was doing a jazz album, and he was actually using a different rhythm section. He was using um, Ben Sidron's jazz rhythm section, kind of jazz funk guys from Madison. Uh, Ben was from Madison, but the musicians were were from Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. and they'd all grown up around Prince and stuff, and they were kind of like jazz funk guys. And uh, the Peterson family, which is kind of well-known in the Minneapolis area, became the rhythm section and then Gordy the drummer you just met a minute ago he was the drummer for Ben and he became the drummer and they did a jazz album so when they did the jazz album um, I wasn't I didn't participate on that and and uh, that's when uh, Steve and I just sort of you know amicably decided to part ways and I decided to stay in town and raise my first kid and, and he went out and did this jazz tour so I didn't really work for him for about six years and I was doing other things like building guitar amps and you know you know, doing gigs around town, and, you know, I was still into my writing thing. I was writing things for television and movies, soundtracks and things like that, including one of the songs on this Two-Tone Kitty, which was called Why Can't I Fall in Love, which was a song that uh, Ivan Neville sang on the uh, Pump Up the Volume soundtrack, which was a major motion picture about DJs in the basement of, oh, actually, he was a DJ, in his base, parents' basement when he was still in high school. He was doing a pirate radio broadcast from his basement. Kind of a cool movie, and uh, but that's the kind of stuff I was doing: is writing, writing, and being in, in staying in town, raising my first kid, and then uh, kind of going into more of a corporate thing. I was working for JBL at the time, and so then I was at the NAM show with this JBL situation in nineteen ninety three, and that's when Steve said, "Hey, I got that song you sent me a couple of years ago called Midnight Train. I'm going to be doing it on my new album." He goes, "Why don't you?" Uh, think about maybe coming back in the band because we're starting to put the hits back in the band because they weren't doing this jazz thing anymore. Right. And he goes, we need to put the rock thing back in, you know. So then that's when he rehired me. You got Norton Buffalo back in the band. You got Byron Allred back in the band. 
And then eventually we hired Joseph Wooten, uh, Victor Wooten's brother, uh, keyboards, and, uh, and then we just have been on the we've been on the road ever since. Now he took another break from 2001 to 2004, just for himself, you know. But we we all ended ended up coming back in 2004, and we've been going strong ever since. It's a good crew. Yeah, and you like when, traveling with and, these guys. And it's funny you mentioned the crew because the crew and our manager is really, really the reason why we're out here doing this. Because without them, I mean, we just would just be a bunch of knucklehead musicians just being like little babies, not knowing what the heck we were doing. They kind of tell us where to go, what to do, how to do it, fluff it up, make great lights, make the sound great, make sure everything's plugged in, in tune, hand us the stuff. We just kind of show up and play. But without them, we're nothing. You it's know? true. If you, if, you, if you step on that stage <clears throat> and you're on a dark stage... And nothing's coming through those speakers. Yeah. What are people there for? Yeah. These are the guys that make the show happen. Stoking the star maker machinery. Right. Wow. I love those guys. When did you guys tour with you two? Oh, well, that was the Abracadabra tour. When we went out in 82, uh, what happened was is that the record was released in the U.S. on Capitol, which was Steve's uh, domestic label, domestic in Canada. But his manager had, had the good sense to maybe... Uh, to make a worldwide deal with a different label called Polygram Mercury out of Amsterdam. And they're the ones that got a hold of the Abracadabra album. And without Paola or any help from, you know, the greasing of what was going on in the U.S. industry at the time, Mm -hmm. they made Abracadabra number one in Europe, like in just like a month's time. And they did it just by pure, you know, just it's a good song, let's play it, blam, you know. And so we changed our whole tour. I had to run out and get a, a visa I'd never been to Europe before, and I had to, like, you know, run to Europe. And we, we started there with the Abracadabra Tour, and U2 was one of the uh, opening acts. And uh, they used to warm up our PA for us. And we had some other acts, too, like the Tom Tom Club, the Talking Heads, and a guy named Mink DeVille. And, you know, it was like it was different opening acts, but U2 was one of them. I think at that time they only had I Will Follow, which was the only song they had. Da, 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 I will follow. Very early on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I would hear them on the piano go, well, that's interesting. And I'd listen to the guitar player and I'd go, is he ever going to take a solo? I mean, it was, I mean, because it was a different new kind of approach to music. It was Definitely. this sort of like 80s uh, sound texture kind of thing. You know, they weren't like lead guitar players and instrumentalists and stuff. It was just texture. And then Bono singing over the top and everything. But. But I don't think Bono was too happy we had a number one record in, in, in Ireland at the time. Because when we played Dublin in 82, uh, I remember we were uh, at a wine bar and uh, some Aer Lingus stewardesses invited us to go to this wine bar and dance and stuff. And these women were all Catholic. They were all married. You know, they didn't want to do anything outside of just dancing and drinking wine. But they were really friendly and they were really nice. And they got us this table. It was in this beautiful little wine bar, and we were just having a great time partying. And the next thing we know, after about an hour or so of hanging in there, the, the club owner comes over and says, uh, I'm really sorry, gentlemen, but you guys are going to have to move over to this table over in the other corner. And we said, what for? And he goes, well, this table is reserved, which was a lie, because it wasn't, you know. And because we'd been there, you know, since they'd opened or whatever. They had to open at four or something. So anyway, we had to get up and move. We didn't know what the heck was going on. Come to find out it was Bono. He was jealous that we were getting all the attention and stuff, so he wanted to take the table over and kick us out of it, you know, because we were in his neighborhood. So not not a great experience with, with no, him. No, that was my first experience with him, and then we then we went back a couple of years later, and by then they'd had big hits, 
uh, you know, Joshua Tree was just first hidden and stuff. We were doing Rock Palast in Germany in 84, and we still were closing the show, which, of course, they were a little jealous about, or I, I would say he was. And we offered him to come up and sing uh, Midnight Hour with us and, and jam with us, you know, and have the guys come up, whatever, and we talked about it. We even gave him a part in our dressing room to do an interview like we're doing right now mm-hmm. because they didn't have a twilight place to go. It was, you know, so I think Steve gave one of them a guitar. I mean, it's like we were just being real nice. And so we said, yeah, you know, come up and sing Midnight Hour. So what do they do? He, he puts it in his set, does it, knocks, you know, just has a great response from the audience. And oh, then they leave. No. And he never even sat in with it. Oh, so no. he stole the jam song and didn't even come sit oh, in with it. But that's my two experiences with, with Bono. When you're touring, and you've been touring for so long, such a huge difference now when, when you have social media and you're able to post, I'm in Toronto, I'm in Brazil, I'm in California, I'm in Japan, you know, and let your family know and have a closer connection with your family. You're able to FaceTime with your family. You're able to text with your family. You're able to email with your family. Back in the 80s, you didn't have that. Correct. So tell me a little bit about how that makes touring life maybe a little bit easier for you. Yes. Uh, I just started FaceTiming a year ago. I mean, I'd never even done it before. I mean, it was just seems like a miracle because, you know, I'm an old, I'm an older guy, you know, I'm in my 60s now. And it's like, this kind of technology is just like, oh, you, really? We can be like have like live television shows ourselves, like just hold a camera like this? Wow. And it's going live? Wow. You know, because in the past, you know, you always saw the truck, you know, with the big dishes. In fact, if you read my book, I talk about that. But of course, it's, it's in the past when those events occurred. But that's my, what I see in my mind is this big crew, you know, like big giant cameras with cables, you know, a satellite dish, you know, it's like, it's hard to believe you can just hold up this iPhone and put on a show. Right. So it kind of freaks me out, you know, and it's like, I, it also makes me feel a little invaded, my privacy, you know, but at the same time, I guess if I'm, you know, open-minded to it and I brush my teeth and comb my hair and, you know, look okay, it wouldn't be so bad, you know. But then again, even that doesn't matter because I'm starting to notice now with the kids and stuff, they don't have any, you know, they don't have any hang-ups about just being bedheaded and kind of, you know, pimply-faced and no makeup and just doing these live videos and mumbling through the thing and the camera jiggling and they don't care. People seem to still enjoy it, you know, and it's like there's no, there's no standards. There's no... Uh, you know, there's no tradition or any kind of uh, rules, you know, and I, I have to kind of get over that, you know. So to answer your question, yeah, it's been a lot nicer being able to FaceTime and have all these incredibly uh, instantaneous communication things with all these with all this technology. But I'm going to have to kind of ease into like doing the blogging with live video and all that stuff, like you've been doing. Because I know you you've got it. You've got it. Pretty consistent with that. It keeps a it keeps yeah. a good connection with. With your followers. But what I have been doing is I have a couple Facebook um, pages. I have my, my personal one, then I have an artist one. And I'll do a lot of single photos with a little article or something. It looks more like a column or something, you know, or like an article. But it's still not live. You know, it's still not organic. It's not something you can reach out. Something that you can't reach out and grab, you know. <laughs> I want to reach out and grab you. Yeah, and that's what these live videos do. I mean, I, I'm going to have to get hip to that. What is your favorite thing about touring? Um, fishing. 
Really? Yeah, I just fished the other day in, in, in Canandaigua, uh, how do you say, Canandaigua, Canandaigua, New York. It just was a cool little bass lake right by the parking lot. I just, I got my pole with me all the time. And I went over there, and it's what I love about it is that I don't have to pay to come on fishing tours. I'm already out here. And I just go out and I just catch fish before the show. And Peter Frampton's up there playing his opening numbers, and I'm sitting there catching these bass. It's real calm, and I can meditate for a minute. It's my form of meditation. And I can disconnect from anything technological or anything, mm-hmm. you know, in a beautiful setting with nature. And I just kind of, like, zone out from it before I have to go on stage. And then when I go on stage, it's just like the whole opposite extreme. You know, it's just 15,000 people going, ah. You know, and it's like, you know, you just kind of like go, okay, that's your, that's your I can do that too. You that's know? your piece right there. Yeah, but I have a little piece before I, I go on stage. And, and uh, I like uh, the culture of each city. Uh, I get into the foodie thing. Uh, I go around and I have little favorite little restaurants, little places that kind of jump up and down over time. Um, I'm trying not to eat more these days, so I'm trying to like just take a little sample here and there. You know, try to do paleo throughout it and everything. You Don't know. be upset that I brought you burger cookies from I mean, Baltimore. I know. You're going mean, to just have to taste them. Well, our guitar player is from Denmark, and he's a sweet tooth. You know, see, he's oh, probably well, going to He'll be very happy when he gets get on this it. bus. And then I think our tour manager will try Oh, he'll love it. You know. But, uh, and then Gordy might, too. I'll get him. I'll get all those guys to try But I, I, I'm just not doing that stuff these days. I, I can't. Because I'll eat, I'll, I'll eat the whole box. You know. Yeah. You know, OCD. It's true. It's tough to end. <laughs> trust me, when when you're talking about the cookies, the burger yeah. cookies, you can't. It's hard to stop, but you have yeah. to. They are very filling. Yeah, yeah. What is your least favorite part of touring? Being away from you know family functions and you know the, you know my wife, of course, you know when she needs me and and pouncing uh, around in the back of this thing on bad roads on a four or five hour you know trip that's not really long enough to get any deep sleep, and then having to work that day. You know, and just you know that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, other other than that, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, it's just the travel uh, and being away from the family. That's all. That you know, the, the rough part of the travel. I mean, when we're doing an eight-hour drive, it's fine because then I'll you know I can just zone out and go to sleep, shut the windows, and fall asleep. And then that way, when I get to the hotel, I'm already rested. I might even go out and see the city. But um, I'm kind of claustrophobic in these bunks in here. And that's the reason why they gave me this lounge, because I stretch out here and I... I, I we're, we're in the back of the tour bus yeah. to give you guys a visual, and it's a, uh, it's a very nice, uh, bigger space on the back of the bus, and it opens up to a double bed. Mm-hmm. Full? Yeah, but I usually just sleep on the couch. I don't even bother opening it up, but if Diane comes out, we'll open it up. And she'll bounce around with we'll the here. We get air. You know, the thing of it is, when you're on the rear axle and you're next to the diesel motor, it's you know like being on a boat down in the hole. Yeah. You know, and uh, drama, mean please. Yeah, it's you can you can. I never get I never get car car or bus sick, but it's hard to sleep. You know, it's yeah. hard to sleep. So, but you know, not complaining. I mean, it's the best way we could travel. It's better than flying because flying's even worse because the airports, you know, security, you know. Depression takes a lot longer, you know, because we can just get right off stage and get into this thing. We're already like partying, you know. We're already heading to the next town. We're partying. It's like a, it's like a cruise ship. You're heading to Boston tonight, right? Uh, actually, we're going to Connecticut. Right? Connecticut, yeah, okay. Foxwoods tomorrow. Nice. Yeah. All right. So, um, for the diehard Steve Miller Band fans, okay, can you give us 
something that people may not know. It's one of those moments, usually what happens backstage stays backstage, but what is something that you can, re you can reveal about, you know, something quirky that you guys like to do together? Quirky? Or something that, you <laughs> know, the play, average person won't to, know. We used to play softball with the crew, and we ended up getting all getting hurt so much, we had to stop doing it because we got so <laughs> into it. We were killing each other, you know, so we had to stop that. Then you had to that. take stage or soar. Everybody's not playing to the best of their ability because we're like, damn. Yeah. My shoulders torn out, ACL hurts. Um, you know, I would just say that, you know, we're, it, it, I mean, not so much, we, we don't really hang so much like the monkeys did in the in the monkey, you know, series. Did the I, monkeys hang? Yeah, well, they lived in the same house, you yeah. know, and they like did everything together. And yeah. They, they, they didn't even have any girlfriends around. It was kind of weird, you know. <laughs> that is a bit bizarre. Yeah. And it was like. When I was a little kid, I thought that's the way it was going to be. You know, I thought that that's the way bands were supposed to be. We're like a family, and you were just together every minute. Um, in this organization, we're all independent contractors with independent, independent handshake deals with Steve, and we all come from different parts of the country. We don't hang when we're off off tour. So when we come out here, we're we're like punching the time clock and just professional hired guns in fact there's a new movie coming out it's gonna be a documentary that uh, david foster uh, helped produce it's called hired gun and it has you know my friend steve lukather and a bunch of other people bill axe and it shows all these guys that are hired guns playing these big bands going these big tours kind of like uh, 20 feet from stardom was from the female background singers a documentary like that it's it's gonna be that way that's kind of what we are we're hired guns and so we come out here and we are supplying a service to the community that's kind of the way I look at it. We're, we're, this music of Steve's has become such an iconic part of Americana culture uh, just by way of, you know, drawing the luck of the card. You know, I mean, it's just like we're, we're on classic rock radio probably every hour on the hour, you know, in every major city. Um, I can attest to that since I've been on a classic rock Baltimore station for 14 years. Yeah. I mean, uh, we played the Steve Miller Band. Frequently, a lot. yes. A lot. I mean, yes. you know, I mean, along with, you know, Stairway to Heaven and everything else. You oh, know, yeah. And, you know, heavy mean, rotation, though. You are on heavy rotation. Steve's on heavy rotation on Classic Rock. That has not changed. But uh, we're, as far as new material goes, and we talked about this last night, there's really no market for a Classic Rock act trying to come out with new material. It's very difficult. You know, uh, I won't really name names because they're all friends of mine, but there's a lot of really big name acts out there right now that have new products and nobody knows it which is really kind of a shame because there's no market for it. There's no there radio isn't. format. And, and, and classic rock, you know, we've, we've played a few of the new projects and it's not as well received. People love those classics. Yeah. yeah. And then you get into the territory of, well, what is classic now? Because right. now we're playing Nirvana and we're playing Pearl Jam. Yeah. And Soundgarden. As old stuff. And it's older stuff, but that's, yeah. that's becoming. The new classic so rock. Classic, classic. Yeah. A new class. Right. Right. So there's even different layers of that. So so when you to answer your question, I think that the the thing that that people might want to know is that we really, really appreciate the fan base. We really appreciate all the people that love the songs, that are coming to hear the songs that are the tapestry of their lives. You know, when you got married, you know, when you graduated from school, you know, when you, when your mom passed away, you know, and you had a kid. You know, all these songs have different meanings for different people at different times of their life. And it's become a part of, like I said, it's American 
folklore almost. And we can see that in the people's reaction. And so when we go on stage and we see the reaction when we start playing these songs, it's a great feeling to know that at least we're bringing this art into your neighborhood and you're able to enjoy that for that moment in time. And it gives us that satisfaction that we've been a delivery system to let that happen. Mm -hmm. And our egos are not involved. We're just there supplying the frequencies, the rhythms, and the beats, and you know, and, and you you're, know. you're one of the most down to earth musicians I think I've ever met. Well, I mean, you have to get to this point because otherwise it'll destroy you. If you let your ego get to the point where you think that they're going to see me, and now, you know, I'm so it's great. It's good to stay you know. humble, and humble you are. And Steve's that way too. I mean, if uh, we talked about this last night, I mean, not a lot of people know who Steve Miller is and who, what he looks like, but they love his music. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they don't even know the name of the band. I mean, you can't believe how many people that are just family and friends that hear that we're coming into town through friends and friends we have, and they go, well, who are you playing with? You go, Steve Miller, and I go, oh, I don't know. And you go, well, what about... You kind of do, like you just eagle? don't know. I'm a midnight hooker, take the money and run. You start saying that the song, you know, lyrics, and they go, oh, man, I love that song. That's my favorite, but they, they don't think about, because we don't have like a logo name like Journey and Foreigner and Boston Beatles, you know, it's like, you know, Stones, you know, we don't have that. We just have a guy's name that sounds like a guy that lives down the street, the Steve Miller band. You know, it could be the Joe Smith band. You know what I'm saying? So that doesn't really carry a lot of weight. So the art is what precedes the man and the title and the logo, which is a testament to how great the catalog is. So we basically are out here bringing this catalog to the world as a, as a community service. We're coming into town and going like, isn't this cool? It's like setting up fireworks and blowing them all off. It's like, you know, watch this. You light them up and everybody goes, ooh, that's really cool. And everybody goes home. You know, it's like, it's, that's kind of what it is. And I, I, I just would like the fans to know that we really appreciate them coming out and supporting this because we're not taking that for granted. We enjoy bringing that to you, even though we're not the monkeys and all living in the house together and writing songs every minute. You know, it's like, you know, we're just bringing this to your town, you know, uh, it would be kind of like the, the Grand Funk song. We come into your town, we help you party down. We're the Steve Miller band, you know. That's basically it. You know? Maybe you guys should come out and sing that tonight. Well, I mean, we're not going to do their material. <laughs> we're going to competition. <laughs> Actually, Mark Farner is a very good friend. I've worked with him. He's a nice guy. So, it's but yeah, but that, that, uh, nothing really spooky or mysterious or you know, strange backstage to, to share, you know. I mean, obviously, we're not having the crazy orgies and drug parties and drinking than we did when we were little. You aren't? No. No. Everybody thinks we do. You know, and that, and and I don't try to like deny it. I mean, when people go, yeah, we're on rock and roll, yeah. You know, it's like, you go, yeah, right on, man. Yeah, we're having a real good time here. You know, it's like, you know, they don't realize that, you know, we're all on our cell phones and calling home and writing, you know, books and, you know, doing Hanging out with really strange podcast chicks down in DC, it's it's but Should the fantasy, the fantasy still exists. I mean, we still dress the part, and we still act the part, and we move around on stage, and you know, we try to. I mean, we're not like an extremely visual band. I mean, we have a great looking stage, but you know, Steve's always been a very uh, modest performer, and we can't out 
from him because it would make him look diminished. So we're, we, you know, you'll see the show, and it's just kind of a very mature. I've seen the show. Cool. It's very, it's very cool. It's a great vibe. You yeah. get a good sense of yeah. what you guys are all about. You know, we're not trying to act a fool or anything. Yeah. You know, we're just going up there no. and delivering the song. You know, but it's not showy. But again, that's a testament to the catalog and the material. It doesn't have to be augmented yeah. with all this showbiz stuff. You know, you just get up there and just perform you know and so we don't take that for granted we're, we're so happy the fans come out we're glad they have a great time and it's a, a wonderful feeling knowing that we were able to bring some some joy into somebody's life for that point in time so people can go to kennyleelewis.com they can go to hangdynasty.com they go to barfliesmusic.com barfliesmusic.com barflies with a z <laughs> B-A-R-F-L-Y-Z Blues Band, and it's Barflies. Yeah. Well, and the Blues Band is just a, a byproduct of the Barflies. If you, if you go to the barfliesmusic.com site, you'll hear the band that I have with my wife, Diane. And we don't just do this stuff. We do everything. We do all kinds of stuff. You know, and that's I heard your wife's. I, I heard your wife singing on this, and yeah. she's fantastic, by yeah. the way. Yeah, well, she, she was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds in the Sgt. Pepper movie with Peter Frampton. Really? Yeah. She got the role in 1978 and did the movie, and it was a, a, a movie that didn't quite do as well in the box office as Grease and Jesus Christ Superstar and Tommy and all the other ones that Robert Stigwood did. But it, it had a very successful soundtrack, you know, come together from Aerosmith and Got to Get You in My Life by Everton and Fire, and even uh, Billy Preston had a single of Get Back on it. It was really nice. And Diane sang three songs on that album, and she got paid equal to all the other artists, so that was really fun for her. And, uh, but that was uh, her claim to fame was she's the only Lucy in the sky there's ever been. Wow. Fantastic. Wow. Thank you for coming and, uh, and sitting with me on your tour bus. You, I you appreciate can let, it. You can let me come on your tour bus anytime. I'd be glad to. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day I will have a tour bus. You never know, but it probably will never be as nice as this tour bus. This is a beautiful tour bus. Yeah. Well, you're a dynamo. You got, you're the energizer buddy. And I know you're going to go far. And, Thank uh, you. You still look like a little kid, you know, both you guys. So, oh, you know, that's so I know nice. you guys are going to do really well. Nice. And, uh, you know, lovely Rachel here. We met her last night. She's been here helping us with this recording and everything. And, uh, but yeah, thank you for uh, having me. And uh, we just hope that everybody has a, a great time this summer. Come out and see us. And uh, uh, I love Baltimore. I love You're on tour for the rest of the summer, correct? Yeah, through, through, through mid August, yeah. And uh, I love Baltimore. I love, you know, the crab cakes. I go to Moe's in Little Italy and I just scarf them up. You know, so that's, you know, one of my foodie places that I love to go with. Bell's Point's a fun hang, you know, even though they torn it all up, you know. And uh, Bell's is great and they built up Harbor East. Yeah. And we have a great little city. Yeah. You know, it got a bad rap there for a little while with these riots. But I have to say, I love being born and raised and still living in Baltimore, yeah. we have a great city. Yeah, my, my youngest daughter, uh, Kendra, goes to Micah there. And was it Bo- Boylston Hill or what's, what's over there? Bolton. Bolton Hill. Bolton Hill. Bolton Hill, yeah. Mm-hmm. Micah, and she's been going there for three years now. And, and uh, you know, we go there all the time to help her move her out of her dorm. So we kind of come Baltimore people now. And we always play Pier 9 when we're there. And it's Pier 6. Pier, Pier 6. 6. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Pier six, and uh, it's a it's a great hang, and it's a rock and roll town, and, and yeah. we always have a, a great time playing there. We we do. We have you know people don't quite know exactly what type of music our town is, and we have, and I can tell you, I've recently been scouting local bands. 
and we have an, an abundance, an overabundance of talent in this city. Um, and, and we really put it to, to good use. We have several bands that have made it out of Baltimore. Plus we have all these local bands that have so much talent and we have a lot of venues and possibly more venues coming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we love to have live music come to our city so we can enjoy it. And, yeah. and again, thanks for coming. Kenny Lee Lewis.com. Thank you, Meredith. Yeah. Thank you, Rach. And Woo. and you never know, just to give a little tease, I might have on my show in the next month or so another member of Hang Dynasty. Oh. You'll have to stay tuned for that. Oh. So thank you all. We're going to hop off this tour bus. Yes. Keep on rocking me, baby. baby. <laughs> Keep on rocking me, baby. All right. That was our tour bus interview with Kenny Lee Lewis from the Steve Miller Band. It was amazing. An amazing experience hanging out backstage with him. They did an incredible show. It was with uh, the Peter Frampton guys, and it was just awesome. They killed it. Had a great experience. Lots of fun, and the weather was perfect at Meriwether Post Pavilion. So, couldn't ask for a better concert night. It was a lot of fun. So I'd like to thank Kenny Lee Lewis for being our guest tonight on Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. You can find out more at KennyLeeLewis.com. Learn all about Hang Dynasty from HangDynasty.com and see what they're up to. And if you go to Amazon and type in Skeleton Dolls, you can get his book that's all about twins. Ooh. ooh. Also Barflies Blues Band and their album Two Ton Kitty. Big Fat Mama is my favorite. We're going to close the show out with that in just a few minutes. First, I want to uh, tell you guys about a new segment that we're going to be doing on this show. It's called Local Flavor. And it's where I take a Baltimore band and basically introduce them to you guys. Pick a Baltimore band that I think is interesting. And for our first one tonight, I've picked the Mayan Factor. Here's their song, Warflower.
All right, that was Warflower from The Mayan Factor. If you go to the mayanfactorband.com, first thing you see is one word to describe The Mayan Factor is haunting. It's bridging the abyss of unreal to real. And man, they've got some impressive tour dates. July 18th, they're going to be at Fishhead Cantina with fuel, you know. Wow. In my hands, in my hands. I don't even know the words. Remember them? <laughs> and October 7th, the bitter end in New York City. November 4th, Mexico City. Oh my. They're going to go to Mexico. They were founded in 2002. They're on Facebook at the Mayan Factor. And again, the MayanFactorBand.com. I got such a huge response to my Facebook post for local bands. One person, I don't know, a few months ago said, Baltimore music scene is dead, man. And I said, I'm going to do this show and I'm going to prove you wrong, man. Because the Baltimore music scene is amazing. And the people that sent me, the bands and the artists that sent me their stuff, the original stuff, not even cover bands. I mean, we have an, an amazing abundance of cover bands. A lot of good cover bands here. But the original stuff that was flooding into my messenger, holy shit. <laughs> so the Mayan factor kind of fell into my lap. And I looked at this video, Warflower, and, you know, I'm a traffic reporter on the radio, so I loved it right off the bat. I'm like, it's like, cool. They're in traffic. So they're driving down these winding roads. It's very interesting. And I loved the song. I closed my eyes. I took myself out of the video and listened to the lyrics, listened to the sound of it, and I fell in love. So, again, the MayanFactorBand.com, bunch of really great guys. Give them a listen available to buy their music online and I love Warflower and they do a song called Beauty and the Beast and I'm really into that too. So thanks the Mayan Factor for being our very first local flavor spotlight on Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. Again, thank you so much to my amazing guest Kenny Lee Lewis from the Steve Miller Band. What an awesome time getting to know this incredible storyteller. He's a character. Such a character. Had me in stitches, this guy. He's funny. He loves to fish. He fell off a stage last year, shook it off. Oh, my. And part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. That was a story unto itself. They weren't very pleased with them. But nonetheless, they made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Did a great performance there. And uh, you never know when they're going to roll back around. We'll catch up with him again. So... Again, you can check out Barflies Blues Band and Amazon, Get Skeleton Dolls. It's a great book. I'm in the middle of reading it now. It's very interesting. Goes into sci-fi towards the end, and uh, it's cool. You really dig it. So coming up in just a couple of weeks, we've got the Kelly Bell Band. The entire band is going to join us here live in studio. I'm building an addition. <laughs> Mike's making some space. Oh, my. Hopefully we have enough seats to fill with all these, uh, well, we have enough seats for these butts that are coming in here. But we can't wait to have the Kelly Bell Band, Fat Blues, coming to our show. Thank you so much. Remember, what happens on the tour bus stays on the tour bus. Now get off my tour bus. I want to 
need a substantial meal Some people like the diet But that ain't the way I feel I like a big plump chicken Big old old legs Can't use no turkey jerky Walking around on family day Need a big fat mama I need a big fat mama Like a thin girl With eyes popping out of their head I say that's too damn skinny They might get lost in my bed Well I prefer me a big girl To keep me warm at night The sheets might wiggle loose But Lord, you know I hug outside I need a big fat mama oh, I need a big fat mama loving and big girls treat me right after a long day of drinking she can carry me home at night some people like a thin girl with bones sticking out of their hips i'd rather have a big old girl with big old juicy lips big fat mama been hanging backstage with Backstage Pass and Meredith Marks. Now get your ass off the tour bus. This is a big timing comedy production.